As a leader of your company, you must stay up to date with your strategies and execution or risk obsolescence. Welcome to the Finnovate Show, financial services innovators bringing you the future today. And now, here's your host, Jerry Purcell. It's the Finnovate Show, brought to you by Innovation 360 Group. I'm Jerry Purcell. Get ready to think about your biggest challenges and capitalize on your biggest opportunities after this. Executives depend on external consultants to fill knowledge and experience gaps or to have an experienced mind audit their thinking. The Innovation 360 Group brings together a wide range of proven thought leadership from around the globe and cost-effectively makes it available to you. Get the insights, advice, and systems you need to succeed. Learn more at www.innovation360.com. Our guest today is Peter Rutledge, President and CEO of CDIC, Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation. Peter has extensive experience in Canada's financial sector, and prior to joining CDIC, he was a senior advisor at the Department of Finance, where he provided advice on a range of policy issues, including financial stability, housing, finance, and competition in Canadian financial services. His experience includes a variety of leadership roles, both in Canada and abroad, having served as Managing Director of Research at National Bank Financial and as leader of Moody's Canadian Financial Institutions Group, among other assignments. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Great to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. From my point of view, anyway, CDIC plays an important role in protecting depositors in the Canadian financial services marketplace, but many people might not be aware of it or know what it does. Tell us a little bit about CDIC. Well, we're trying to change that, but through our public awareness activities. Well, I'll give you a, a brief synopsis of what we do. We're Canada's deposit insurer for federal deposit-taking institutions. Uh, and we're also the resolution authority for those institutions. So what that means is if you have uh, a bank deposit at one of Canada's federal deposit-taking institutions, and that total is below $100,000 across seven different deposit categories uh, per institution, your deposits are insured. So if your bank fails and there's no other solution, uh, i.e. a transaction of some sort to reconstitute the bank's asset and liabilities at, an, at another institution, we, we pay you out uh, 100 cents on the dollar. And you don't have to worry about your bank deposits when you bank with CDIC. Our other responsibility in the system is to act as a resolution authority. So when one of our member institutions gets into trouble, we take actions to protect depositors first and foremost, uh, but also to deliver a resolution that is as non-disruptive as it can be. Uh, in our history, we've resolved 43 member institutions that became non-viable and paid deposit insurance claims to more than 2 million Canadians. And no one's ever lost a dollar uh, of deposits insured by CDIC uh, in our 53-year history. Today, our deposit insurance in force is $970 billion with a B. And uh, there are just over 85 member institutions uh, in our membership. That would include all of Canada's uh, large banks, as well as uh, a great a variety of uh, other deposit-taking institutions, including credit unions and mortgage and trust companies. 
The one other thing I'd, I'd mention is we uh, have in our membership two credit unions. Uh, they're federal credit unions. There are a wide array of provincial credit unions across the country, uh, over 200. The deposits at those institutions are insured by the provinces, not by CDIC. So they don't fall into our membership. Yeah, I'd done a little bit of research because I hadn't checked into CDIC for for a while. And I was surprised to see the the sort of national credit unions covered because I, I would have answered alternatively if somebody asked me. But they don't usually ask me about that kind of stuff too much. But. Yeah, last, last decade, uh, the government passed legislation to enable a provincial credit union to join the federal system. And two have chosen that path. Interesting. So there's a lot of change going on uh, today, and, and it's challenging for everyone to stay on top of all that needs to be done. But I'm sure for, for CDIC, that applies to the core aspects of its mandate, like preparedness and planning and all the necessary actions that have to be put into place to uh, sort of address its mandate. How is uh, CDIC responding to the potential of a crisis within a crisis? We live in a world... Uh, I'd like to say we live in kind of a dark world. Let me let me explain that. You know, in the normal course, although we want Canadians to know the protection is there, Canadians won't really have to avail themselves of CDIC protection because we have a re- well-regulated, well-capitalized, liquid financial system. And in the normal course, that's great. We live in a we prepare for periods where uh, there is some uncertainty and intensifying downside risk. We always live in that world. We're always preparing for that outcome. So our challenge in this crisis has really been to scale up our readiness because, uh, and while I don't wish to predict that there will certainly be a worsening of uh, financial conditions and and economic conditions, the uh, likelihood that that sort of outcome arrives is higher than it was 12 months ago when we weren't in the midst of a pandemic. And so what we've done since the arrival of the pandemic is everything we can to try and minimize harm uh, if, if we take uh, or suffer a, a downturn. And so the first thing we did was uh, quadruple our awareness spending so that Canadians knew their deposits were safe, so that more Canadians knew. That had its intended effect. More Canadians today than ever before are aware of CDIC and what it does. We have about a 61% awareness uh, rating, so unaided awareness across Canada. Um, and that, you know, deposit insurance works if people know it exists because they know it exists, they trust the federal government will make good on the promise, and they leave their deposits in the banking system, which contributes to financial stability. Uh, the other thing we've done, and it, it predated the um, pandemic, is we've spent a lot of time and resources in building up our resolution planning capacity and capability. So we have rather detailed, extensive plans to resolve a troubled bank if one, if, if one of them happens to get into problems. So, for example, if one of Canada's large banks were to get into trouble, we have rather detailed plans to, uh, to guide us in dealing with that situation. Uh, developing those plans has uh, occurred over a number of years. Uh, most recently, over the last year and a half, we've spent more time outside the systemically important bank field. And we've developed resolution plans for smaller for, for smaller institutions, say less than $60 billion in assets. And so we feel just simply the, the effort of, of preparing for a potential crisis and kind of planning out ahead of time what we need to do if one arrives uh, is 
sort of how we've responded. And then the other way, just briefly, um, we've taken the role as crisis simulation leads. And so for our federal financial safety net partners, we increasingly monthly game out war game, if you will, financial crises. And, and in a safe simulated environment, we, we test our decision-making capability. And nice thing about those environments is if you make a mistake, it's pretty inexpensive because it's all in pretend world. Uh, and by going through that trial and error in the pretend world, you start to learn things that will be quite useful to you in real world. So, so let's talk a little bit about innovation. And and just with respect, uh, uh, when, when you think about government and near government, it's not usually something that comes to mind. My understanding is that, uh, first of all, there's a number of initiatives uh, underway in C- inside CDIC, and, but there's lots of change going on around you uh, in financial services, you know, branchless banks and open banking and conduct and, you know, uh, negative interest rates and all kinds of stuff like that. So so how how is CDIC responding to this need to be innovative in the context of and and keeping people's money safe. Yeah. So it's interesting you asked that. When I got to CDIC, you know, the mandate assigned to me by uh, first the selection committee and then the board of directors was kind of threefold. Remember, this is pre-pandemic. It was transform the culture so we're more resilient and able to thrive in crisis. Build out our technology platform so that it's ready for the digitalization of financial services. Uh, and then build a enterprise risk framework that will inform better decision-making in normal times, but more importantly in a crisis. So those were our three you know, innovation platforms where, where I thought we needed to do things dramatically differently. On the cultural transformation, it started off as, you know, what kind of talent do we need to, to bring into the organization and how do we uh, develop it over time? But very quickly, we recast it as kind of a bold shift in our culture. And we, we sort of call it internally moving from CDIC 1.0 to CDIC 2.0. And, and we started that, and this is the core of, I think, all our other innovation activities. We started with the simple premise that uh, an organization's culture eats strategy for lunch. Therefore, the board and the CEO should focus on it passionately. And that an organization is ultimately a community where uh, the constituents ought to define the culture and then leadership's job is to live its cultural values or what we call our promise and our promises and commitments and represent them and take accountability for it. And so we had a, a small team of, of colleagues from all parts of the organization define our cultural values, define our promises and commitments and then not only is it my responsibility to live it, it's my leadership's team responsibility to live those and build those into how we, we run the corporation. And so we're in the process right now of building those into our performance measurement and management framework. And we're saying to people, it's not enough just to perform well. You have to be aligned to our values. In fact, we want you aligned to our values before you're aligned to our performance standards. Uh, we'll be much more likely to move on from a colleague if they're uh, not compliant with our cultural promises and values, even if their performance is good. And if we have someone who's really compliant with their cultural values, we'll take the time to coach, coach their performance up if it's deficient. And so it's, it's that getting that kind of cohesion is crucial to innovation. Building that platform 
now we've branched out into our next source of innovation, which is around technology. And if you think about our technology platform, uh, the last time we had to pay out for on a failed member was in 1996, Security Home Mortgage Corporation in Alberta. Expectations of depositors in a digitalized financial services industry are very different. We need to upscale our payout platforms pretty dramatically and pretty quickly in order to meet those expectations. And so uh, we started about a year ago uh, on our largest technology uh, investment initiative in our history. Uh, And we'll spend anywhere from 30 to $50 million to upgrade our ability to uh, fulfill our promises in the event we choose to pay out insured depositors when their financial deposit taking institution fails. And that'll be a a three to four year uh, engagement. And then the uh, third plank of our innovation was, and again, this ties to culture as well, is changing the way we think about risk. And what we kind of, you know, came to the conclusion was that CDIC doesn't have a business strategy per se. We exist as a crisis or crisis resolution organization. And so Risk management and strategy for us are synonymous. So we took a very strategic approach to risk management. Uh, our ERM, Enterprise Risk Management Framework, drives uh, our strategy. Uh, we dedicate resources not at our strategies that are most promising, but at our risks that are most threatening to our ability to fulfill our mandate. And as again, as I started, at the foundation of everything we do is if you get the culture right, the innovation follows on its uh, on its own, you know, internal momentum. The world is moving fast. It's difficult to keep up. Your executive team routinely needs new ideas to keep them ahead of the competition. Imagine having a plan in place in 30 days to focus your innovation efforts, improve customer experience accelerate your move to digitization, or increase speed to market. Our guide to accelerating your innovation agenda provides you with insights and time-saving resources to plan your path forward. Contact Jerry to book a quick call or for your complimentary copy at www.linkedin.com backslash in backslash Jerry Purcell. G-E-R-R-Y P-U-R-C-E-L-L or email Jerry at jerry.persil at innovation360group.com So do you think the events of the past year or, or whatever, six, seven months will change public's perception of, of the environment or financial services? Uh, I'm going to give you two answers to that. I would say the current sort of financial and economic outlook is, is as uncertain as, uh, as any time. Um, since the great financial crisis, and perhaps even more uncertain than than that point. Because the potential outcomes uh, range from actually quite a a constructive, positive outcome where we we get back to work, uh, where a vaccine arrives and is basically effective at lowering health risks that is posed by the pandemic, and that businesses uh, recover uh, and jobs recover. And uh, it turns out uh, there aren't heavy long-term costs associated with this pandemic. I acknowledge there's short-term costs, but long-term costs that manifest the, themselves in higher default rates within businesses or, or households 
are quite low. That That's a plausible outcome. And in that case, uh, I think the financial sector and what we do and our role in it will continue to evolve. If we get into an alternative outcome where uh, there are uh, where the economic costs are higher, uh, where the snapback is slower, where the uh, uh, where the uh, retreat of health risk is slower, then I think financial services will uh, will change rather significantly in Canada because uh, for the first time in quarter century, we may in that scenario have to deal with the failure of a deposit taking institution. In that in in that scenario, my job as CEO and our job at CDIC is actually to do such a good job that people don't really notice the shift in financial services. You know, my shorthand explanation internally is when one of our members fail and we resolve it, I want that to be on page B11 of the newspaper. I don't want it to be at top of the fold, page A1. Uh, We know it's going to make news. The first bank failure in Canadian history will will make news. Let's do such a good job that not many people notice. And it's not, it's not a noteworthy uh, situation. Uh, If we can do that, then um, I think we've done our job and we've, you know, lessened the transformation that might occur as a result of the pandemic in, in the financial services industry. Now that doesn't change the fact that uh, financial services uh, and in particular banking are, uh, are going digital and business models that used to work won't work anymore. And new business models that we haven't even thought of or that we can only see dimly in the future are going to be right there on, in front of us quite quickly. So a big part of our, our, our innovative work, probably not for the balance of this fiscal year, but as we get into uh, the latter half of 2021, we'll be on, okay, how do we have to innovate our deposit insurance product for these new models? You know, if there is, if, if digital currencies arrive, either through uh, central banks or by other players, uh, what is what is the role for deposit protection in that world? We need to have answers readily uh, available uh, for Parliament because they'll come asking us that question sooner than we realize. So you've been at this now for a couple of years. I guess maybe uh, you may just pass your anniversary of your, of your start, I think. So what surprised you about the role and the, and uh, CDIC in, in general terms, uh, sort of as you've gone through the through the experience? What surprised me was we were a, a diamond in the rough. We had a, a utility to the system and a level of talent in the organization that was quite evident to me within the first few weeks that I was here, but that we hadn't truly liberated. And what I think we're seeing as we go through the, this, this particular crisis, which, uh, as you well know, came way out of left field, you know, our utility as an actor in the system that, can, that is there to promote financial stability and, and, and our talent and the, and the value of our talent is coming to the fore. It did surprise me. I guess in hindsight, it doesn't surprise me that it was there. Uh, what surprised me is that it had uh, it had lied sort of in the shade a little bit too long. The grass had overgrown it, and I think some of uh, some players in in our system, both in in the private sector and the public sector, 
kind of last side of the of uh, of the value CDC could provide. We're we're liberating it now. A uh, big part of my job will be to get out and and uh, remind folks uh, uh, how useful and how constructive we can be uh, in pursuit of uh, the mandate Parliament is assigned to us. Who who do you see as sort of leaders in in the sort of this sort of space or in financial services in general, and and what do you think we can learn from them in Canada? Yeah, you know, the Canadian financial system, and I'll I'll focus on uh, our space, which is really federal deposit taking institutions. It's it's bifurcated. We have a very very healthy and profitable, well capitalized and liquid set of six large banks that are reasonably classified as null about. Beyond that, there are, uh, there are an array of financial services providers that uh, are what I would call uh, challenger institutions. They're, they're looking to capture parts of uh, the larger bank businesses uh, or create new markets for themselves. Some of them are our members, so they take deposits and they're regulated by our friends at the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions. Uh, others are uh, outside the regulated space and are providing financial services through partners uh, and in in lesser regulated spaces. I don't think any of them, I don't think any player in financial services thinks they're not regulated. Some are more regulated than others. What's interesting is I see really cool innovation uh, at Canada's six largest banks. Uh, I see it within our some of our uh, deposit-taking members who I classify as innovative challengers. And I see it in these new uh, disruptive uh, digital-based models that are lesser regulated. And I don't quite know how it's all going to work out. And I think the you know competitive marketplace is going to help us define it. Uh, our job is simply to ensure our product, which is deposit insurance, is fit for purpose. It serves that competitive marketplace in an effective way. And our job is not to aid one group of competitors over another. In fact, we don't have a competitive, there is no uh, part of our mandate that, that asks us to promote competition in financial services. There is uh, our, our friends at OSFI have that in their mandate, but we don't. Our, ours, our job is to promote financial stability. But we need to innovate our product so that it continues to be stability enhancing when new models arrive in the digital financial service space. And so we have to think really cleverly about how our product and how our members might change in the years ahead. So what advice would you give to today and tomorrow's financial services leaders as, as things move forward? Well, in the immediate circumstances, I think, you know, our, I, I'd advise leaders in, in, in our membership to focus on just enhancing their capital and liquidity resiliency. I think, as we learned in 2008 and 9, there's no such thing as too fat a capital buffer or too fat a liquidity buffer. That which seems expensive today might look pretty inexpensive in, in a year. The institutions in 2008 and 9 that got out in front and built liquidity and capital buffers are still here today. The institutions, some of, at least some of the institutions that didn't do that disappeared rather um, unpleasantly. Uh, so that would be the, 
first thing. We just got to get through this. And I think it's about a, a, another two to three year uh, process to get through not only the pandemic, but it, the you know absorbing the economic costs of the pandemic. At some point in the next year, I think we're going to have to turn towards what a, a COVID uh, evolved economy, is, a post-COVID economy is going to look like. It's not going to look like what existed in January of, of 2020. And, and financial services will have to be there for that. I think externally, they'll have to be there to finance different business models that are going to rise as a result of COVID. They're going to have to be there to dispose of business models that aren't going to survive COVID. They're going to have to be there for a great leap forward in terms of the digitalization of financial services. You know, cash payments have uh, receded uh, as, a, as a medium of uh, transaction noticeably during this. I suspect it's rather unlikely um, that uh, cash's prevalence in the payment system uh, ever returns to where it was in December of 2019 or January of 2020. Uh, that means new models, transaction-based models are going to sprout up. And, and those, those models, payments models, may morph into uh, quasi or actual deposit-taking models. And, you know, our, our members need to be ready for that because they're, pro- they're going to face a competitive threat. Uh, but within that threat, there's an opportunity we have to be ready to make sure that uh, however Canadians choose to uh, place their deposit or deposit-like funds, uh, that they're protected. And we have to be ready on the legislative side and on the operational side to, to protect those deposits. Thanks, Peter. That's uh, very thought-provoking, actually. I'll have to go off and listen to it a second time. To... <laughs> but that, that wraps up our episode. As always... I look forward to hearing thoughts from our listeners about today's show. Uh, Keep the conversation going. And if you like the show, tell your friends. And please take a minute or so to rate our show and to comment on LinkedIn. Go to www.innovation360.com or your favorite podcast site to find out more and listen to more shows. Stay safe. See you next week. And Peter, thank you very much for chatting with me today. Thanks, Trey. That was fun. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to The Finnovate Show with Jerry Purcell. If you like the show, share it on your network and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can go to www.innovation360.com to listen to more shows, download the transcription from today's show, or to contact today's guest. This is The Finnovate Show, financial services innovators bringing you the future today. Today.